At this time... Finish chapter 2 and begin to get into chapter 3. It's the force. Since that's everywhere else right now, right? Uh, it's ridiculous. All right. Well, I want to say thank you to uh, a couple people in particular for last night, Ed and Carol Hogan for their great labors for the cantata last night. Um, Ed didn't want me to thank him, um, but I, I want to. I don't think there's anything negative or that takes away from Christ when we affirm the work of Christ in people and the way that they use their gifts for his glory. And so Ed and Carol did that beautifully last night, and so many others of you who sang and others of you who work behind the scenes provide food for the orchestra, for the choir. So I'm grateful for, for you guys and enabling us to have the opportunity to experience to communicate the gospel um, to our community last night. So I'm, I'm very grateful. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16, and we'll read through uh, chapter 3, verse 2 this morning. So we continue on in our series through this letter of Paul to the church in Colossae. Pick it up in verse 16. Paul says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the, all the things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now picking up in verse 1 of the next chapter. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. As we saw a couple weeks ago, um, this is the second part of a of this two-part section here in Colossians in which I have addressed it and called it bootleg Christianity. You know what a bootleg is, right? It's the, the DVD that is where someone sneaks a video camera into the movie theater and films the, films the movie and then sells it at a very low cost. I referred to the time, my time in Bosnia where I bought a number of nice Lacoste clothing from a market in Bosnia and it only went down the extra large to my navel. Uh, it was a bootleg Lacoste shirt. There is always something wrong with bootleg religion and bootleg Christianity. Now, and what Paul goes through here is there is different forms. There's going to be something different wrong with different aspects of different bootleg materials. And Paul has given us, as I've seen, or as I showed you a couple weeks ago, three bootleg types of Christianity. We looked at the first two 
two weeks ago before the Thanksgiving holiday, and we come to the third this morning. The first two, where the first one was this, bootleg Christianity substitutes the shadow for the substance, for symbols and old traditions for the real thing. In modern day Christianity, you could call this, this is the issue of traditionalism. That valuing old traditions of Christianity, which have a place and have a purpose and are of some value, but are meant to point to the real thing. And you can lose the real thing with too much focus on the tradition or on the shadows. The second bootleg Christianity is the type that substitutes the speculative for the vital. This is mysticism. Talked about this a couple weeks ago as well. These are those who, as it says in the passage, who seek to have visions, who seek to worship angels, and all kinds of have some sort of bizarre prophecies that they include with that often. This is mysticism, wanting to have experiences, often um, almost out of body experiences, or dreams and visions that come from asceticism, which is in some of these cases may have been starving themselves to the point where they hallucinate. And they see things, and that was a cool experience, apparently. doesn't sound like fun to me, but that's what they were doing. And so this is an aspect of their Christianity. And we see this even today, where you can say you actually have, you need to have this type of Christian experience, or believe this, have this special knowledge, or have these visions in order to have the fullness of the Christian life. Well, we come to the final form of bootleg Christianity as it's communicated in this passage here at the end of chapter 2. And this, here's the main point for this morning, the main proposition, and it's this, is that this last kind of bootleg Christianity substitutes the rules for the relationship. This is what I'll call moralism. We've had traditionalism and mysticism and now moralism. I'm going to call this rules-centric or rules-based Christianity. Now, part of me gets a little bit of squeamish talking about the difference between rules and relationship because it's almost become too kitschy. Uh, I find it to be a little flower childy Christian to just talk about, you just have to have a relationship with Jesus as if it has nothing to do with the rules because we have a covenant-keeping, covenant-relationship God who when just like in a marriage context, when you love somebody, there are certain things that you do and you don't do. Rules matter for the relationship. But what is going on here is that there is, there is Christians, and we, it's so subversive, but we fall into this so often, where we make the rules the center and the basis for our Christian life instead of a loving relationship with God the Father. And then obeying him and expressing affection to him in the way that he has asked us to express affection to him. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to first begin by describing rules-centric Christianity. Let me very quickly kind of walk through the points that I think this text gives us to describe this rule-centric Christianity. Very briefly, three things. First, they are connected. These teachings are connected to the demands of the elemental spirits. This is a very confusing thing. The elemental spirits are most likely this belief that this is, remember, these are what the false teachers are preaching and teaching about, that they need to do certain activities in order to assuage certain uh, demonic angels of sorts. This isn't Bible teaching. Remember, this is false teachers teaching. There's enough weird stuff in the Bible without having to add more weird stuff to it. Uh, so, so demonic angels that we have to appease through certain behaviors. So that's this elemental spirit. Second, the teachings are man-made. And third, they're, mo- they're made visible and manifested, these false teachings and this moralistic teaching through um, very stringent and strict regulations. What is going on here in Colossae is that there are false teachers who are coming in and they are giving the most basic form of elemental thinking in this world. 
which is that you, in order to be made right with God, must do certain things. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, avoid certain things, or do certain things in order to be approved by God. Now, in order to better understand what's going on in Colossians, I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I read this a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to read it again, because we see the same things going on in Timothy, except Paul gives us a nice specific example here of what's happening. It says this, picking up in verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Here's the reference to the elemental spirits going on in Timothy. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. There's the false teachers. And here comes the strict regulations that they were pushing. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Did you hear that? Nothing is to be rejected if God is declared to be good. The false teachers that Paul is addressing in 1 Timothy in very similar fashion to what is going on in Colossians are saying that if you want to be made right with God, if you want to experience the fullness of the Christian life, then you need to live out a very strict morality that involves even physical intimacy, such as what you get in marriage. Avoid certain foods and certain drinks. Don't touch that and don't do this. So that's what's going on in Colossae. That appears to be something that Timothy might be dealing with and that Paul is warning the church about, that the church may deal with. But you might think, we don't have something near as deliberate as that. We don't have people coming into our churches and invading our churches to promote a strict, extra-biblical regulations where they say the Christian life is all about avoiding certain foods and drinks or certain music or certain activities. Would you say that that's non-existent in the church? If you would say that's non-existent, you would be quite wrong. And you probably haven't spent very much time in the church. This is one of the most subversive and most difficult issues that comes into churches constantly within Christian ministries. Let me just give you a description from a guy named Ron Enroth's book. This is from the 90s. He wrote a book called Churches That Abuse. And here are some of the situations that he described. And this is not uncommon. I'm going to give you two that he describes. The first description is this. Where one church where the pastor instituted a strict dress code for both the men and the women. They had dietary codes prohibiting shellfish, pork, and alcohol based on the pastor's very narrow Old Testament interpretation. Oreos, of all things, were outlawed because they contained lard. And interracial dating was also outlawed. Another group, another church required that no one buy insurance, wear no contact lenses or glasses. Shame on many of you this morning. And they must remove all the seatbelts from their cars because they, in order, they had to do these things in order to fulfill what it meant to walk by faith. Wives were expected to be at home, barefoot, and probably pregnant, but mostly because they were not allowed to use birth control. They were told to not only pray for something, they were told they could only pray for something once, because, in order, because if they prayed for something more than once, they would be engaging in vain repetition. Married people were not to engage in any sort of physical foreplay or any kind of physical intimacy for the purpose of pleasure, so as to avoid inciting lust. And the members, this is the kicker, were not allowed to consult with attorneys because they probably would sue the pants off an abusive church. 
You can see the regiment that they are giving here, and this is not uncommon, unfortunately, for churches and for people and, yes, families and ministries to insert their practices, strict regulations that often go beyond the scriptures. They appear so sincere. They appear so committed. Aren't they great Christians? They are more disciplined than me in many ways. But so are Muslims who blow themselves up in buildings. The answer of sorts is no, actually. They are not better Christians. In fact, at best, they are deceived and naive. And at worst, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. In fact, there's a book called Dragons that many pastors read called Dragons in the Church. And it describes this type of person who comes in saying these people are often pathological and they destroy churches. Because they seem and look like they mean so well and they care so much about holiness, supposedly. But they run rampant through a church. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that this type of teaching that is going on here in Colossae and in other places that we find in the church comes from where? He says it comes from hell. He says this is the teaching of demons. Here's the point. Anytime someone says to you, here's the measure of your spiritual maturity, and they point to anything besides trusting in Christ and Christ alone and what he has done for you, someone has just handed you the doctrine of demons. Now, this type of person, this type of family, this type of church or ministry is pervasive enough that I also want to walk through some other characteristics of this kind of teaching and community. This will feel maybe a little bit like buckshot. I'm going to kind of walk through the pattern of how this works But I think there's some ways in which God has uniquely uh, given me some opportunities in my life to engage with this type of person and this type of Christianity. You see, while um, I grew up in a grace-loving, Jesus-focused household where obeying God's commandments mattered, where we are to pursue holiness, but pursuing holiness and obeying God was not the means of our acceptance. And the application of God's commandments and how we live those out were not communicated as being equal with God's laws. But my family was often surrounded by those who experienced and lived their life based on a rules-centric Christianity. For example, my family was members for a time of what was known as the Advanced Training Institute, or ATIA, or IBL, as it was known at various times. This was a homeschool ministry led by a man named Bill Gothard. Some of you may have heard of him in the 80s and the 90s where he would um, host large and very popular conservative and very hum, uh, fundamentalist um, uh, uh, circles or conferences where literally tens of thousands of people, primarily homeschoolers, would flock to his teachings on basic life principles. And while there were some lovely principles that were taught to me through the course of that program, I am grateful for the disciplines and the structures of my life and the standards that were given to me through that ministry. It was a teaching and a ministry that could be the poster child for the type of Christianity that I'm talking about today. One quick illustration from my time with that ministry. I was at a conference when I was 15 years old with a group of other young men in which we were being trained in counseling. (laughs) We were being trained in counseling as 15-year-olds. The great wisdom. It makes sense in a homeschool context because we were supposed to go back and teach our children. Our, I mean, our parents' children. Um, so I was at a conference for young men on counseling. And at, at the end of that conference, at the end of that conference, we were going to take a group photo. And I had one of the particular uh, officials who were part of that particular ministry. They all look the same, so I don't know their name. They all dress alike. They look the same. It's like the Matrix. 
So they, this one particular person came up to me with a comb and said, we have deemed the part that you have in your hair inappropriate. And if you want to be a part of the picture, then you need to fix it. I'm not kidding. Here's how this type of Christian ministry culture and people develop in order so you can be aware for your own heart and your own mind because we are so apt to go this direction. It most often begins with sincerity, and it is sincerity. It is a sincere desire to love the Lord, to please the Lord, to be holy, and to obey God's commandments. Now, in seeking to keep God's commandments, they begin to develop practical wisdom they love the word wisdom. In fact, in ATIA, our booklets were called wisdom booklets. I love wisdom. I think we need to reinsert it back into the Christian vocabulary. But this is the word they most often will use. They need to develop practical wisdom for how to avoid certain sins or ways to carry out certain commands. Now, in C- now as they do this, though, the distortion that occurs is that as people and groups develop what they believe to be the wise ways of keeping God's commandments, of keeping themselves from certain sins... What will happen is they begin to see their wise ways and wise applications of God's commands on equal footing with God's commands. This is what the Pope does, by the way. This is turning mommies and daddies and leaders of Christian ministries to do the same thing that the Pope does where he lays down a papal creed and makes it equal with the scriptures. This is what they're doing. In other words, they equate man's precepts, which there is of some value to them, in carrying out life of good instruction and wisdom, but they equate man's precepts in carrying out God's standards and God's commands as equal to God's commands. Do you see the subversiveness of it? It is an attempt to obey God, and it's a desire, a sincere desire to obey God, but then they subvert it because they actually make their wisdom equal to God. Now, from this point, there can be very various dangerous and consequential things that begin to develop. The first thing that often begins to occur is that when you equate your wisdom with God's laws, what these folks or these families or these churches or ministries begin to do is everything in the Bible and in life becomes completely black and white. There is no gray. There is no subjective. There is nothing that is relative or situational. Actually, what they end up doing is make everything a matter of obedience or disobedience and have actually sliced off wisdom entirely in doing so. The thing that they loved so greatly, which was wisdom, by bringing up to the same standards as God's commandments, they've actually done away with wisdom at all. You see, wisdom is the situational application of God's commandments to the particular places and scenes of your life. So you, you take concept, you say, God has said to do this or not to do this. How do I apply that? That is a good practice to carry on. But so often what they do is they, may, they get rid of all the, the gray. That there are various situations in life that are not often clear. In fact, there are times in which they actually make very unclear things in God's word to be black and white as well, when even some of the best scholars and theologians wouldn't make those commands of God black and white. Here are some common areas in the church, and I'm talking about our church, our church in our particular, I would say, our type of Christian that we attract here, the common areas where this might happen around these issues. One, alcohol. Food and drink in particular, but alcohol is the one that is most famous. Second, schooling. Actually, this is probably number one in our church. When I hear the statement, I believe in homeschooling, it makes me want to throw things. And it makes me, and it, I did the same thing in Mississippi because in Mississippi, the statement was, I believe in the public school system. Now, there was a, there was a cultural and societal reason why they would say that. 
But homeschooling is not the only correct application of Deuteronomy 6. It's not. And to equate it as obedience to God's law is to create something that's not only extra biblical, but is judgmental to other people. Dress, low brow versus high brow dress, particularly as it comes to how you dress for church. Entertainment, what you're allowing yourself or your children to watch or not to watch. Level of lifestyle, what kind of car you drive. Do you drive a Mercedes? Some people in the Christian world would say that you're a heathen for doing such a thing. Can you dress at a certain standard? Can you have a home that looks a certain way? Worship values. Often we pass judgment on the various desires that we have for our worship services, whether they take a more traditional approach or a more modern, contemporary approach, songs written recently or songs that have to be hundreds of years old. We can judge one another and create standards of righteousness based on these things and even ministry approaches. We can canonize different approaches to ministry. I was talking about this to a Sunday school this morning, and I, Sunday school is a, is a great aspect of Christian education. Did you know that Sunday school began as a missional program? It began after the Industrial Revolution as there was kids in the slums who were uneducated, and Sunday school started as a means of educating the, the non-believing children. It was a missional program, and eventually the rich people in the churches decided, we want this for our kids as well, and then it became institutionalized to the point where if you try to get rid of, home, of Sunday school in a church, people are going to throw rocks at you. Now, I love Sunday school, and it is of great value, but we are all as a church, the mission that God has given us is to give glory to him and to make disciples, and we can choose to do so in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different settings. And so just like for us, we have chosen to take community groups as a main approach to the way in which we want to develop disciples. But in 20 years, that may not be the, right, the best way we see fit, and you change it. These things are not set in stone. But we often will canonize these different approaches and make them areas of righteousness. And the consequences of this, these wise rules, can, what they can end up doing, they can do a number of things. One, they can invade the areas that God has commanded us to enjoy or participate in. In Acts 10, Peter has a vision of a, of a sheet of pork, essentially, coming down. And Peter says, uh, God, I'm not supposed to eat that. And God says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. Did you hear what I said in 1 Timothy chapter 4 earlier, what I read there? It says this, For everything God created by, created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. That is an imperative. Nothing is to be rejected that God has declared good. So often what we can do, we can create such wise structures and rules that move out from God's commandments to such a point that we, we are no longer even allowing ourselves to enjoy the things that God has said, you should enjoy this. Now, in so doing, we also, in doing that, we undercut our missional ability. I, I don't know why this is, but here's, here's so often what the church does. In response to the sins of culture, the church's response is to say, we're just not going to have anything to do with it. So technology... There are many places, because of iPhones and iPads and the pervasiveness of technology, the response of the church is to say technology is bad, have nothing to do with it. And so what they see is they see an abuse, and they say, if there's an abuse over here, we simply are going to exclude ourselves from it entirely. That's not the biblical approach. The biblical approach is to say that God has created all these things as good, and your job as Christians is to redeem them. People always talk about Christmas being a pagan holiday. Yeah, it's a pagan holiday. 
But you know what Christians did? We redeemed it. Easter is a pagan holiday. And you know what Christians did? We redeemed it. This is what we are called to do, to enter and invade a dark world and take the things that man is abusing in its sinfulness and brokenness and show the world and reveal to the world how we can enjoy God through the beauty of what he has created. It undercuts our missional approach. And here's the next thing that can happen. So first, we begin to take these wise practices and we make them equal. We make them equal to God's commands. We uh, begin to get rid of everything that's gray. We make everything black and white. And the next thing that may begin to happen is you begin to treat man's wisdom and applying God's law as equal to God's law. You've now created new standards upon which people are judged. Listen, you can read through the Bible, and you can read through that, and you can go, this is enough. But for some reason, we seem fit to desire to create more standards. That's the approach that we so often take. And what begins to happen is as these individuals or churches or families begin to use their newly developed wise standards as the means of determining faithfulness and fruitfulness in the lives of other Christians. What they have done, there are dire consequences for this type of bootleg Christianity. Not least of which is that it really begins to mess with the relationships amongst Christians. Christians, let me say this, let me give the example. A Christian who feels judged in the gray areas... Because you have made everything black and white, the Christians who feel judged in the gray areas are not going to be able to confess sins on the areas that are clearly stated as black and white in God's word. The woman who feels judged because she has a glass of wine on Friday night will never, ever, ever be comfortable to tell you about her abortion and to confess to that and seek healing for that. This type of approach to living the Christian life, this constant feeling in the ethos of a church or a family or in relationships where we're having to walk on tippy toes around one another because we're never quite sure we're going to shatter someone's wise, great standards for how you're supposed to live as a Christian does not develop an ethos of grace and mercy and even repentance and confession. If we're going to abandon the idol of morality, of moralism and religiosity, we must decide that we will not make gray areas gray areas, areas in which we will over break fellowship over. The third thing can often happen, so we make everything black and white, we begin to create new standards of judgment, and the third pattern is that we begin to, ha- begin to happen, is that what begins to happen is that these people or churches begin to take an authoritarian approach to the way they disciple. They become unbiblically controlling and sometimes even abusive. And here's why this happens. Because once you've crossed the line of making your wise applications of God's commands as equal with God's commands, what have you done? Inherently, you've put yourself on the throne. You've made yourself the moral standard and the moral authority for everybody else around you, and it's only a matter of time before you become a little authoritarian dictator to the people around you. It's just a matter of time. Now, by the way, God has established, though, man man dwelt authority positions in this world. Children, don't confuse this with obeying your parents. God has told your parents to have authority over you, which means when they instruct you, you should obey them. Church members, God has given elders, plurality of elders, authority over us. Governmental authorities have authority over us. But the scriptures have given the ethical parameters uh, that in which parents and elders and church and government bodies can have authority over people and how they are to exert control and accountability over people. And so we ought to study those things 
and we ought to know them. But so often what happens is when churches or families or particular people take on this role of being God is they become abusive. Let me give you an illustration of this that happens over and over and over again in the church. There is a passage in the scriptures that talk about Christians not suing one another. And this is falsely applied to the issue of when someone might be sexually abused in the church. And people will go to church authorities and say, this person did this to me. And the church authorities tell them that they should not go to the police. That is not a right application of God's word. One, once going to the police about a criminal activity is not a lawsuit. It's simply reporting criminal activity. And God has given governmental authorities, they're an institution in this world that God has ordained and set aside, and there is the church authorities. And you should go to the appropriate authorities. So any church, often this happens over and over, they say, you you should not go to the governing authorities. They're one, they're violating the law, and I think they're abusing God's law in doing so as well. And it becomes an abusive environment in which people can't even expose those engaging in abusive behavior. This is the destructive description of this kind of rule-centered Christianity. Now, what's the problems we see? The heart issues of what is going on with this rule-centered Christianity. Paul gives us two, two problems. First, rule-centered Christianity damages our relationship with God. This is going to take some, just a second to flesh out, but let me read through verses 20 through 22 again. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the all, the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Here's what is happening here. These teachers are coming in, and they want to measure their Christian progress by the basic elementary standards of this world. Now, here's the issue. The, the moralistic, legalistic measurements and standards for Christian maturity and for the full Christian life, what Paul's saying here is they are no different than the standards of every other worldview and every other religion in the world. You see, there, there is, and I think what the false teachers are getting at, and Paul's using their language, there is behind all false teaching in this world a demon. There is a liar out there. And the elemental spirits of this world, their greatest dogma is to say this, to be made right with God, to have a full life. Every worldview shows this. You do this, and you get salvation. You do this, and you get the full life. You do this, and you get a cookie. That is the most basic, the most basic form of religion that's out there. Whether it's secular humanism, which is where you just find out what your greatest desires and feelings and and needs are, and you pursue that, and your happiness, your God is yourself, and in order to please yourself, you just have to do whatever makes you feel good. It's the same standard. The full life is serving myself. In all my desires, I have to have them to the full. Or even in Islam or legalistic forms of Christianity, which is you're made right with God by doing this, 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 and this. And perhaps God will approve of you and be merciful to you. But Paul's saying that living by a strict set of rules as the means of Christian fulfillment and as approval with God is the same slavish standard that every demonic spirit that is underneath all the terrible teachings of this world is preaching and teaching. Rule-centered Christianity makes law-keeping the means of acceptability with God. It returns us to the old standards of acceptability. This is the standard that the world has in place. And what Paul's saying in Colossians is, why are you letting yourself being dictated by these old standards when through the gospel there is a new standard? He says, he starts out this way. 
if with Christ, if with Christ, in other words, since you are connected to Christ, since you are already in relationship with Christ, you have died to the standards of this world. You are already accepted. You are already approved. Why would you go back to these old standards? A rules-centric or rules-based Christianity is a rejection, in fact, of the work of Christ on your behalf. It's a rejection of it. And replacing God's paradigm for our relationship with him with the world's paradigm. You see what you're doing? You're playing the same game that everybody else around you is playing when you've been offered a much better system. In rule-centered Christianity, you return to your pre-salvation paradigm of relating to God. Make no bones about it. Rule-centered Christianity, rules-based Christianity, is not just unhelpful to our relationship with God. It is destructive to our relationship to God. It undercuts the very basis by which you are made right. You're made right through the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, not on what you have done. And to to move from that standard destroys your relationship. Here's the second problem. Rule-centered Christianity doesn't change your heart. Or in even more layman's terms, it doesn't work. Verse 23, after saying, do not taste, do not touch, do not feel... Whatever it may be, these have an indeed an appearance of wisdom, it says in verse 23, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the flesh. Did you hear that? No value in stopping the flesh. One of the wonderful and fulfilling experiences of the Christian life is to grow in holiness. It is. You should be passionate about obeying God. And you should be excited when you see yourself grow in obedience. It is a means of assurance and joy when you see, five years ago I lived like this, but now God has done a work in my life and I live like this. We ought to pursue that, seek obedience, and seek change. We should do it because it gives us joy and assurance. We should also do it because God commands us of us. Paul says, walk in a manner, over and over and over again he says this, walk in a manner that pleases the Lord. We should be passionate about this. But the question is, how is the fruit of righteousness developed in our life? The approach of the false teachers in Colossae and of a moralistic mindset is espousing the approach that so many Christians inadvertently take. It's the approach that says that the fruit is produced in our life through simply great rule keeping and strict regulations. Paul Tripp calls this jury-rigging the hearts. What Paul's telling us is that if we think we're going to get righteous, obedient, sin-defeating style of Christian life, if we think we're going to get that by just creating more and more rules, more and more barriers between us and the actual command of God, then we're kidding ourselves. I'm going to address something that I see consistently from the members of this church on Facebook that is dangerous. But I see this played out. Okay, one of the issues that we see in the moral decay of our culture is we no longer have the Ten Commandments in our schools. Now, I think it is a sign of the fact that we no longer care about what God says. But if we think that the Ten Commandments was the means of changing us, have you not understood history at all? The Ten Commandments were given to the people of Israel and not... Two seconds later, they were worshiping a golden calf. Within a couple years, they were sacrificing and slaughtering their children to Molech, and they had the Ten Commandments everywhere. You know why? As Paul says, the law is not sufficient to change you. 
And so the answer to this country is not, well, if we can get the Ten Commandments back up on walls. Now, I think that would be a lovely sign that we love Jesus, that we care about what he thinks. But it is not going to change the hearts of our students. It is not going to keep us from having gun violence in our schools. It will not. It is not the answer. The gospel is the answer. We need hearts that have been changed by the work of Jesus. No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. When we talk about overcoming sin, we can, we can talk about it through economic terms. Supply and demand. Supply. There's a supply approach. We must deal with both in engaging with our sin. There is the supply where you struggle, if you have a struggle with looking at things on your computer, the supply response to change is to say, I'm going to get rid of my computer, or I'm going to cut off my internet, or I'm going to put a filter on my computer. If you're watching season after season of shows on Netflix at an addictive pace, you cancel your Netflix account. That is shutting off the supply. The reality is, though, is that you can shut off the, pl- the supply You're going to shut off the occasions of your sin. You're going to avoid the occasions of your sin. But in doing that, though, it's of some help, but it doesn't actually change your heart. Because you actually, in doing so, haven't dealt with the demand that your heart has for those things. You haven't dealt with the desire for that sin. All you have to do is deal with the supply, then your heart won't change. This is called, have you ever heard of supply-side economics? That's what this is. Where you just deal with the issue. Paul is saying that merely supply-side sanctification is not effective. It doesn't overcome the power of sin ultimately. Really, well, here's what will happen. My children have these toys that are rubber, kind of rubberized. And they'll have this kind of goo in them. And you can squeeze the toy on one end and all the goo will move to one side. And that's lovely. You squeezed all the goo out of your life and out of your behavior on one side. But it's going to pop up somewhere else. So you may have a problem with alcohol, and you may be able to cut yourself off from it entirely. But if you don't deal with the issues of the heart, that idolatry that is underneath that sin is going to come back out somewhere else. So we've got to deal with the demands of the heart as well. What is effective? Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. This is where we're going next week. We finally get to the positive. After like three weeks of polemical, mean teaching... <laughs> I get to go to the positive next week. Praise the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Here's the answer. Here's the demand that must be dealt with. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. How do you deal with the demand? You have to have a new demand. Set your minds on a new thing. Seek the things above. We need a new demand. We need a new delight. We need a new heart demand in our life. This is what leads to real change. And we're going to talk about how we get that next week. Now, let me say this really briefly about how this connects and actually how this redeems the supply side. Because our interaction with the supply side is given the right perspective when we see that we must also deal with the demand side. In fact, more fundamentally and foundationally, we must deal with the demand side of our hearts. Let me use the example of fasting and abstaining from something. You may decide that I... There's a command in God's word that says, do not get drunk. And so in order to never, ever get drunk, you say, I'm going to abstain from this to make sure I never even come close to it. 
There are times when we could and where we should abstain from something. Whether it be for a brief period of time or even particularly if you have a chemical, a nature, or a nurture engagement towards a particular issue that you simply cannot enjoy that particular thing that God has called good without violating his word. So if you are an alcoholic, you should not have alcohol anymore. You should call alcohol good and you should say, one day I will take a beer stein and I will go like this in worship to the Lord. But for this life, I will abstain. But I will not call it not good. I will not say that everybody else in the Christian life has to live by this practice. Let me give you an example from the scriptures. Paul talks about this. This is a great one. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that the, that the only time that married couples should abstain from sexual intimacy is for the purpose of what? Delighting their hearts in the Lord in prayer. So they abstain the supply Cut off something in order to enjoy what? God better. For a season of time, they're going to do this. Now, there are two astounding things about this. First is that a couple would have such a passion for prayer, in particular a man, would have such a passion for prayer with God, have such a delight in who God is, that they would desire to abstain from sexual intimacy. That's an amazing thing. The second amazing thing, though, is that a couple would be having so much sexual intimacy that in order to get time to have prayer... They have to abstain. It takes a miracle. But in order, but in order, but listen, that's funny. That is funny. (laughs) Abstinence is good for a certain period of time. And you do need to make some of these decisions, whether it be a season or for a lifetime. But do not call the things that God has called good evil. The spiritual reality of your life, if you truly want your heart to be changed, though, you must delight in the creator who has made all good things. Your heart must be changed or else your addiction to alcohol will just come out somewhere else. You need to have a demand, a delight in the Lord. Jesus has an illustration, or actually there's this one time where he casts demons out of somebody. And he says, if the the demons are not replaced with something better, it's going to be replaced with a thousand more demons. That's how sin works. And therefore, you have to replace all the addictions and all the sins and all the nasty proclivities of your life with something more, something better. We must hold fast to Christ and his work, and the whole body does this together. Many of you have been in accountability groups over the course of your life. Here's how most accountability groups work, and at least it was when I was a teenager. Hey, did you look at anything this week? Yeah, you moron. <laughs> Bad Christian. I'm in a discipleship group, and I lead a group of guys now, and I'm a terrible leader of it in regards to how to do life on life. But if I can get one thing that's stated to my guys, it's this. It's not that we we just come in and say, did you look at something this week that you're not supposed to? We should do that. But the more valuable question is, did you look to something beautiful this week? Did you look upon the face of Jesus? That's the way your heart has changed. Let's pray, and let's go to the table. And elders, if you could line up like a poinsettia on the side, that would be lovely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to end the law's demands, that we no longer have to live by the standards of this world, the things that have crushed us our whole life, but we live in the grace and mercy of Jesus, that our approval and our acceptability is not based on what we do, 
but it's on what Jesus has done for us. Gracious God, I pray and I ask and I plead that as we come, become more enamored in the character of all that you are and all the intricacies of your beauty, God, and all the greatness of what you have done for us through the cross of Jesus Christ, that our hearts would sing, that we would delight in obeying you, that we would live holy lives in response to our love of you, not to earn your love, but to simply live out of the love that you have already given to us. Lord, we set aside these elements, this bread and this cup this morning that represent your body which was broken for us, that took the wrath of God for us, and your blood that was shed for us to cleanse us and to wash us from our sins. We thank you for these physical representations of your grace to us. And we pray that you might fill us today. Fill us through it so we may be satisfied upon you. We ask this in Jesus' name. If you have a problem with gluttony, with eating foods that are bad for you, what do you need to eat instead?